Hi, we're the ladies of LifeSite, and we're so glad you're here. We're ladies simply navigating the challenges and triumphs of this modern culture as moms, wives, sisters, and daughters. Join us each week as we discuss the raw questions and situations that we face every day from our unique perspectives. So grab your cup of coffee, tea, or beverage of choice, and let's dive into this week's episode. Hey guys, welcome to the Ladies of LifeSite. I hope everyone is having a great week. On our last two episodes, Reba and Maddie were joined by their moms to talk about homeschooling. So if you haven't listened to those yet, they offer some great knowledge and insight, and I highly recommend you give those episodes a listen. Today, Claire and I are joined by Joseph Backholm to discuss the Texas abortion law that took effect last week. We discuss the implications of this law, what it means for Roe v. Wade, and what you can do to ensure that if Roe is overturned, your churches and your communities will be ready to support women and their children in all the ways that they will need. Joseph is a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at the Family Research Council. He served as a legislative attorney for three years and spent 10 years as the president and general counsel of the Family Family Policy Institute of Washington in Washington State, where he managed the educational, legislative, and electoral operations on behalf of life, marriage, religious freedom, and parental rights. He led three ballot initiatives on marriage and gender privacy, and we are just so fortunate to have his knowledge and his wisdom and his insight today as we discuss this Texas abortion law. So without further ado, let's jump into the conversation. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation and just breaking down the Texas abortion law. So first of all, could you just kind of break it down for us, give us just kind of a background on what this law is, how it came about? It's an attempt in Texas, and the, the Texas heartbeat bill is, is what it does is it prohibits abortion once a heartbeat can be detected, which is about the six weak uh, marker. The thing that's unique about this bill and really has kind of led to the the, the legal cases that uh, we have seen since then is that it does not actually criminalize abortion. So it does not uh, make it illegal in in a criminal sense. So a, a so a prosecutor does not have to bring charges. It makes it a civil offense so that somebody who is harmed by an abortion can personally, in their personal capacity, sue somebody. So it's like, you know, it's like slipping and falling in a grocery store or getting hit by a car. You claim an injury, you can go to civil court and sue somebody because they did something that injured you. And so that was the really unusual thing about this bill, but it was done on purpose because, as the Supreme Court said, it was done really in anticipation of the case that we just saw at the Supreme Court to prevent a court from immediately throwing it out because you can't throw a court – you can't throw a a law out – until you can't rule something to be unconstitutional until there's an actual dispute, and that has not yet happened. So, you know, in in the legal world and in the pro-life kind of legal world, there are lots of people who are strategizing best case scenarios, anticipating potential litigation, and drafting bills uh, with potential litigation in mind. And this bill, honestly, was drafted with the expectation that a lo- that a lawsuit would be filed challenging it. And it turns out that the drafters of the bill were correct that the Supreme Court did not intervene and immediately throw the bill out because they didn't have a reason to. 
So that's the, the Cliff's Notes version of the history of this as I understand it. What does that mean for somebody who goes, and I just know I can hear from, you know, abortion activists, you know, what does that mean for a woman who goes to have an abortion beyond the six-week mark and there's a, an abortionist who's, who's performing it illegally? What does that mean on the legal side of things? Well, it means they could be sued. You can be personally sued as, a, as an abortionist, as a clinic, as a hospital, whatever that is, in civil court, and then you would have to pay damages to the people who were harmed under this law. So it's not a criminal liability, but it is – there's a potential for significant financial loss for those who would perform abortions, which is why you see them all deciding, well, we can't do this because we don't want to start writing checks for all of our abortions. That's a really fascinating take on it because typically, you know, from the other side of things, you would hear, you know, people saying that they're criminalizing the woman or, you know, so this is a really interesting direction and a really interesting way that it was written for sure. So basically, as far as it goes, we know the law says, you know, after six weeks, you know, abortions can't happen and the liability is right there. So are there any parts of this bill that we should be concerned about? Is there anything kind of up in the air. This story is not over with this bill, to be sure. And in the question that the Supreme Court answered was because the, the court was asked to to preemptively throw out this law and, and rule it and, and determine that it is unconstitutional. But the court did not say abortion is constitutional, abortion is not constitutional. It was almost a procedural question. It was a very narrow question of can the Supreme Court or can a court throw out a law that has not been contested? And they ultimately decided that the answer to that was no, because the, the courts are not supposed to preemptively settle a matter. What we can what we can be very confident in is that the very first time somebody actually brings a civil case under this law, that it is going to be challenged, and then the court is the courts, and it wouldn't certainly start at the Supreme Court, will have to consider this the the constitutionality of this six week abortion ban in Texas on its merits. So the Supreme Court has not said, yes, this is a constitutional law. What the court said is that we can't answer that question until there's actually a case to consider. There is not a case to consider, so we can't throw this law out and determine preemptively that it's constitutional. So that's what they already said, and that's kind of what caused the abortion industry to have, you know, have something of an ulcer is because they were used to the courts intervening in advance and kind of working really hard for them. So I do think it signals an important change. But it is certainly not the end of the story with respect to the Texas heartbeat bill. We can expect this to come to end up in court if and when somebody actually brings a civil claim under this uh, under this law. But in the meantime, I mean, maybe the best case scenario is that everybody just stops doing abortion. And so you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, that's really it's just a fascinating take because it's something I think many people hadn't considered as a means to go about it. But I know the question, you know, I keep hearing circling around is what does this mean for Roe v. Wade? It seems like too soon for the pro-life movement to be celebrating, because like you said, I think it's not the end of the story yet for this. But is there anything that this could do as far as Roe v. Wade is concerned down the road? 
this is a different question than than Roe v. Wade, and you know, in the in the Dobbs case out of Mississippi, is a case that the Supreme Court has already agreed to take up, and they could. They could actually address the question of whether Roe versus Wade is constitutional on its merits. They don't have to, and the, the way the way that the Supreme Court has been acting lately, it might even be most likely that they decide a narrower question before ultimately what I think they will eventually do, which is overturn Roe. This may be the case. It could be if they decided they wanted to, but they've been very, very, very cautious. That's kind of like the Roberts courts. That's just how they operate. They're very cautious about everything and frustratingly so, unless they want to do the wrong thing, in which case they decide not to be that cautious. Um, But (laughs) Dobbs is going to be its own thing. The, the decision that the court made in the Texas Heartbeat Bill case really is unrelated to what to Roe because it wasn't they, they were not asked they were not addressing a question about abortion they were they were answering the legal question can we overthrow a law can we judge the constitutionality of a law when there is no when there's actually no contest yet when there's nobody even alleging a harm when there hasn't been yeah when there ha- nobody's even alleging a harm from the law yet we have to wait for a a conflict to arise before the the court can rule on it so that is a separate question to the constitutionality of Roe they could take this up in the Dobbs case and prayerfully they will but i think the the really significant part of this is that it signals a change at the court where they don't see their top priority as defending abortion. And past courts, just because of what the issue is, and you certainly saw four of the justices who were willing to do that, who would have intervened and and overthrown this law just because of because they like abortion and they really want it to continue. So there's certainly a cultural shift on the Supreme Court with respect to abortion. I hope and pray that that means good things for Dobbs and ultimately the end of Roe. But we can't know that yet based on this decision, I don't think. The question that comes to my mind as I you know, think about this law and the implications of it is – you know, you think in terms of if a woman is harmed by an abortionist during an abortion, she goes and she sues him or her. That to us, right, on the on the pro-life side of things, tells us that abortion is not this easy, <laughs> easy procedure and it's not without risk. And I think that when you look at places like Planned Parenthood and abortion, the abortion industry who say they care about women, they should be, you know, if they truly care about women, they should be celebrating this, right? I mean, because it technically is in favor of the woman having this ability to, you know, kind of look out for her safety or whatever it is, because the whole point of Roe is that they wanted abortion to be safe. And it's not, but it's a fascinating take take on it and a fascinating angle when you think of it in that respect. You know, of course, the, the debate within the abortion debate about whether it's good for women or whether it's not good for women, I think it is, you know, people disagree because they just have different senses of what's, what, what it is to be good for a woman. And some people, some women or some people would say that what's good for a woman is the ability to do whatever you want to do. And then other people would say what's good for a woman is encouraging her to do the right thing, right? So we just define mm-hmm. good in different ways. With respect to the Texas law, it doesn't just give a cause of action to a woman who's had an abortion. It could be anyone who 
has who, who feels like they've been harmed in some way. So it could be a relative, it could be the dad, it could be a friend. I mean, there's lots of people who could bring an action under the Texas under that statute and claim that they've been harmed and and seek a civil remedy, a remedy. So it really is it was done. I think the the those who wrote the bill did so with the intention of kind of creating a a, a lot of <laughs> a lot of potential litigants as the deterrent and not just the woman though of course a woman mm-hmm. who had an abortion could do that but my guess is they would actually be some of the least likely people to bring a lawsuit uh, if they voluntarily had an abortion just because of all of the the emotional challenges associated with that, the emotional challenges that lead to making a decision to have an abortion anyway, and the desire to kind of hide and run away. And that's often what abortion is, is happening. It's just hopelessness. And they are not often wanting to uh, relive that experience. And so, my, you know, my hypothesis would be a women who actually had an abortion would be some of the least likely people to actually bring a claim and that there are others who might become aware of it that would do so. But that's just me speculating. Is there a statute of limitations in a sense? I mean, it's from now on. I mean, at what point could a woman go back and sue? There, there has to be a statute of limitations because right. there is a statute of limitations on basically everything. That's not not actually everything, but basically everything. And so I, I haven't I don't know. I haven't done the research to know what the statute of limitations on this particular law is in Texas. But my guess is somewhere between three and seven years, because that's typically what you have on civil claims of varying severity. What is the likelihood of this law getting overturned in the future? I don't know how to put a number on that. I, I, I don't know. And, and honestly, I have not analyzed it to even have an opinion about its likelihood of surviving on the merits. So I, I don't know. I, I know it's going to be challenged. And I also know that the mood of the court is changing. I think, you know, I, I think we might have a better sense of that post Dobbs and just see what direction the court is heading on on these things. And if we find out that both both Roberts and Gorsuch, who I think are the most likely to be a problem of the six Republican appointees, and I say conservatives because I don't, I don't consider Justice Roberts to be a conservative. I actually would expect him to do the wrong thing on Roe if that question is decided at this point for reasons that are always going to be a mystery to me. But if we lost Gorsuch and Roberts on the Dobbs case, I think that would indicate some real concern uh, for this case and other abortion cases that might rise to the Supreme Court. But I don't think we're going to lose them both. I don't think we're going to lose Gorsuch is is what I think. And that's that's based mostly on the advice and input of people who know a lot more about the Supreme Court than I do and just kind of their hunch. But if that happens – but each case is going to be decided on its own. This law presents different issues than the Mississippi case, which really has to do with admittance privileges and can you can – can a state – restrict abortions in in those ways? Can they require certain doctors to have admittance privileges at a local hospital and and prevent abortions from being provided otherwise? There are always separate legal questions in every single case, and and you can't always just conclude based on one 
one decision how they're going to decide in another case. So that's a really vague non-answer to your question. So I'm sorry. No, I appreciate it. Um, you mentioned Dobbs a couple of times. Would you mind going over what that case is about? Dobbs is a, a case out of out of Mississippi. It's a whole women's health case. And I want to make sure I have this right because they it, it, there was a law passed in Mississippi and the case requires those who perform abortions to have admittance privileges within a, at a hospital within some radius of where they perform abortions. And so it ends up closing down a bunch of hospitals because there are thankfully very few doctors who actually want to perform abortions. And so it, it really makes it less accessible. And so they have challenged that law. And the Supreme Court is going to take that up. And one of the challenges is it just restricts people's ability to get abortions in the way they want to. And it has the potential of giving the court the chance to directly ask the question, does the Constitution actually guarantee the right to an abortion? Because those challenging that that law have, have asserted that. They've said this violates the, the Constitution as – as understood under Roe versus Wade. Now, we all understand that to be a poorly decided case, and, and there are people certainly even on the pro-choice side of, of the political question who recognize that Roe versus Wade and its predecessors have created some unworkable legal standards, which is why, which is why there's so many people who think that Roe is going to be reconsidered and ultimately overturned. But that's that's essentially what Dobbs is. I think we kind of talked about this a little bit ago about how now other states are going to try to push similar bills. What's the likelihood of other states copying this bill? I think Texas has it, – it's blazed a trail for sure because of how novel this approach was and, and the court's unwillingness to just throw it out. It, it is going to be a signal to other states. It's like, oh, this is a – this is a path forward. Maybe we just needed to be create more creative in our approach and try something different. I would be surprised if other states didn't try it. How many that is? I don't know. I mean, it takes a while to get a legislative consensus together and to do some things, but there are certainly, you know, there's, I don't know, is it 18 states or something like that that have a Repub Republican trifecta, which means they have a Republican um, majority in the House and the Senate and also a governor. I think it's around that number. I'm, I, I may be off by a few. But I would be surprised if you didn't see some of those states, and we know which ones those are, you know, the Mississippis, the Louisianas, the, the Floridas, the Arkansas, some of those states, Oklahoma, if, if they did this. I, I would be surprised if it didn't happen. Is it going to be? A dozen? I don't know. I'd, I'd like to think so, because if if this if if the law can remain in effect and not subject to some kind of appellate court ruling, that or some kind of appellate court um, injunction where they've said this this law is no longer in effect, then uh, you could get a lot. You could save a lot of babies in the, in that time. But I think that the abortion industry is probably working very hard to create a controversy that they can challenge soon. I wouldn't be surprised if actually you found somebody in the abortion lobby world who ends up filing a civil lawsuit just in order to, or trying to make one of those things happen so that they can get back into court and try to get this thing to get a court to um, declare it to be unconstitutional immediately. <laughs> Right. I was just thinking, I mean, as far as the abortion industry, as far as abortion lobbyists are concerned, I'm sure there are a lot of conversations happening on that side 
of the aisle right now working on next steps and working on, you know, what they can do to challenge this. So what do you foresee? I mean, as far as practicality goes, a few things that I've heard going around that the other side are kind of doing is putting a lot of pressure on you know, for instance, Brett Kavanaugh. I heard that the shutdown DC group or whoever it is is planning to go and protest or whatever outside of his house and make their voices heard. I mean, are they just trying more scare tactics to try and get, you know, even though Supreme Court justices are not supposed to have let outside forces determine or help them determine things, but is that part of the effort on the other side, do you think, is putting that sort of pressure on you know our justices and lawmakers intimidation is the first play in their playbook at all times so yes the answer is yes if they think they can intimidate that th- th- those are their instincts how do i how do we intimidate these people into doing what we want them to do so will that happen certainly will happen i i chuckle when you say doing that to brett kavanaugh because frankly brett kavanaugh he has endured the best that they have already and right. if anything, I I sense that that has steeled his spine. Is that the expression? Is that a, is that a thing you can say? How, how, whatever that is, that I think Brett Kavanaugh. If there's if there's anything in him, it is not going to be to give them what they want. I've I frankly never seen a human treated more poorly in the political realm than what they did to Brett Kavanaugh and the in the things that they just made up and threw it against the wall and the way they slandered a person because they didn't want him on the Supreme Court. It was one of the most vicious, inhumane things that I've ever seen done to another person without actually like physically uh, harming them. And so his survival, I I, I can't help but think that deep down inside of Brett Kavanaugh's psyche, he he remembers that and he is disinclined uh, to give them what they want. Now, as many jurists do, and I think actually – Justice Roberts has has fallen prey to this is everybody wants to be neutral and unbiased. And there are some people who would just because there's this expectation that it's going to be personal and you're going to do that because it's personal, just as a way of proving how unbiased and how neutral that you are, you are going to shock the world and do something that they're not expecting because what you really want to do is prove that you're independent. And I think I think that's that explains to me a lot of John Roberts and why he has done what he has done in, in so many cases that it seems to be uh, contradictory to his own decisions and what you would expect from the guy. But I don't think Kavanaugh is going to do that. But are they going to try to put pressure on people? There, there's no doubt about it. That's just that's who they are. Those are their instincts. That's what they do. They're bullies by nature. And so you should expect that to happen. How do we on our side prepare for what's to come? Or do we even know what's to come? How do you mean that exactly? Do we even know what will happen in the near future? Like what can we do to prepare? Like how can we encourage activists and how can we reach our governors and whoever else and how can we encourage these bills to happen and things like that there are so many fronts on on this on this abortion issue of course there's the legislative part of it there's the judicial part and that's what we're talking about with these with the these cases that are moving through the the court system but there's just the culture part of this there's the church part of this of um 
am I having these conversations within my church? Is the church prepared to pick up the slack? Because we are looking to a day, and I think the day is sooner than many of us thought possible four or five years ago, where we are going to be post Roe versus Wade. But that's not going to ban abortion. That is simply going to make – that's going to return it to the states so the states make those own decisions. And is the church – are we building up the infrastructure so that we can pick up the slack – so that we are giving hope to people. It's all the work that these these pregnancy centers are doing. We've even heard these stories out of Texas lately. All these abortion clinics that are no longer performing abortions, it's creating a wonderful new burden for the pregnancy centers in that state. And are are we prepared? Are we in a position that when Roe is done away with and when the red states, as they would, would declare abortion to be illegal, we cannot ourselves and other people and those who might feel hopeless in the position of feeling like they have no place to turn. And we have to be building that infrastructure and creating the awareness of of the new need, the wonderful new need that would be created because you can't kill your problems anymore. And and we have to be there to give these women in these situations hope. So there's and and yes, in the in the short term, if we want a six beat, if we want a a heartbeat bill in 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 your state, wherever your state is, yeah, you can start talking to your legislators, uh, call them and say, hey, look what Texas just did. Why don't we do that here? And get your get your mom group and take a, a friendly – take a drive to the legislative office of your local state rep or senator or drive to the Capitol when they're in session and just say, hey, is this something that we can be doing here? Because we'd love to support you and help make that happen. And and with respect to the court system, I mean, we just we got to pray for courage, and and because the Brett Kavanaugh's and the you know the John Justice Roberts and the Neil Gorsuch's of the courts, who are going to ultimately make those decisions, need our prayer because they they are going to under they are going to face a tremendous spiritual attack, and and we need to remember that in in all of our discussion about legal cases and legislative maneuvering. This is ultimately a spiritual war. And the, the people who want these babies killed most often most are not are not actually people, right? This is Satan. This is, we are battling principalities and powers. And the reason they fight so hard for this is because this is literally the sacrament, uh, abortion, literally the sacrament of of those who hate God and who hate the gospel. And it is the ultimate declaration of independence to say the thing that God created to give me as a blessing, I'm going to kill and eliminate as a burden to my life. And it is, it is, it, it, it's severing off our relation in a really aggressive way. The, the idea that God has any authority over me in my life. And so there's so much spiritual significance to the act of abortion, which is why there's so much uh, spiritual opposition to the efforts to be done with it. And so, yeah, cover them in prayer as well. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that is such a, a such a wonderful answer that you just gave, because I think it speaks to all the different angles and aspects. And I think for all of our listeners right now, I want to encourage all of you to look at the states that you're in and see what areas of need are lacking, especially when it comes to pregnancy resource centers. I think Joseph explained really well that there probably is a big need. And it's a we, we're with these laws coming, we are opening ourselves up to more need and more opportunity to help women in those situations. And so are we ready? And I think that is where 
for a long time, I think that more and more pregnancy resource centers have been opening. More people have been, you know, more churches have been getting involved. But the question I think you leave us with is, is that enough? Can we be doing more? And so I think that's where prayer does come into it as far as the spiritual battle. But, you know, what are I know that you're you're really um, an expert in the legal side of things, Joseph, but are there additional areas that you see in different states or just on the community level that you've seen churches do really well or pregnancy resource centers do really well that that others could do as well if they don't have it in their areas? Well, certainly, you know, the the pregnancy center community is one of just the shining lights of America, frankly, in my opinion, because it's just there. there's just so much humility and, and nobody gets into that work for like self-promotion, right? It's just because you understand the need. You're willing to get down in the dirt with people who are just in the most difficult moments of their life. And you're just going to pour yourself out to them in the middle of the night. Oftentimes, whenever they have a crisis, you have a crisis. And it is it is thankless, difficult, but eternally significant work. And I think the challenge that the church faces is we we are so comfortable that we often don't we just fail to remember what time it is, culturally speaking. And because what the issue of abortion has been has been debated for so long, we kind of almost get bored with it. It's like, oh, yeah, there's that abortion thing. Yeah, I think it's bad. And then you just kind of move on to whatever thing that is is entertaining us today or occupying us today. And I just – even the churches that are willing to say they're pro-life affirmatively, and that is too few because it's still a political issue and many people would try to stay away from it just for, for that reason. They see it as political even though it's obviously not really a political issue. It's a good excuse to avoid things that are hard conversations. But even amongst the churches that are willing to to say the right thing and to plant their flag in the right place, there's a whole lot more that can be done in terms of practical ministry and, and, and meeting the needs of people and, and, and really bringing hope to the hopeless. And that's, that's ultimately the answer to abortion. Very few women who get abortions want an abortion. They're not excited about getting an abortion. They feel stuck and hopeless and like they have no other options. So we need to be in a, involved in people's lives in such a way that they know that there is another option so they don't have that excuse pushing them there. So what that means for every person, it's hard for me to say, but uh, but Jesus knows. And for churches and for individuals who feel that burden and want to just be available, I know that that the Holy Spirit will bring those opportunities across our uh, across our desks, so to speak, so that we see, oh, this is this is something from God. These circumstances, this is an opportunity that He's brought to me, and I'm going to listen and I'm going to do something with this. Well, that was just phenomenal. <laughs> Thank you, Joseph. I mean, I think that gave our listeners a really great insight into this law and also some things to watch for and things to prep for and plan for. So thank you so much for your insight and for your time. We're just so grateful for it. Well, it's my pleasure. And I'm, I'm so glad that you guys are, are having the conversation and helping people have the conversation. And, it, you know, all of us doing our part. I'm, I'm totally convinced that within the church, there is there's everything that we need to do exactly what God wants to accomplish. 
And all we have to do is be who he made us to be. We can't be somebody else. We can't do things that God didn't make us to do. But if we do, if we all individually in our days do the things that God make us to do, the sum total of that is extraordinary. And the real challenge is that we are tempted and we are bound by fear and we are bound by all sorts of things and prevented from just being who God made us to be. So none of us should feel the pressure of solving this problem ourselves because none of us is big enough. And that's God's job. But when we uh, be the person that God made us to be, we find ourselves part of that solution. And that's super gratifying and ultimately glorifying to God. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Joseph. We're just so excited to, you know, see see a small win in a way here. And I want to encourage all of our listeners to keep, you know, doing the work in your communities and keep being prayerful because that's, you know, what we can do, just like Joseph said, is is to be all God created us to be and continue in prayer and do everything that we can do that he's he's calling us to do. So thank you so much, Joseph. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you were just as encouraged as I was listening to Joseph talk about what this law means and what we can do in our personal lives and in our communities to make sure that we are being prayerful and also helping our communities be prepared for what's to come. So if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our email list so you can get notified when next week's episode goes live. And if you didn't know, you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform as well. If you have any questions or ideas of topics that you would like us to discuss in the future, please email us at ladies at lifesightnews.com.